A regular question I get asked over mealtimes at our house is, uh, Dad, which superhero would you be if you had to choose? Might be worth uh, thinking about that for yourself. Uh, it's a hard question, actually, because there's so many that we know nowadays as well. And I usually want to be the ones I find, the ones who get extra powers, but who don't turn into some monstrous figure like the Hulk, you know. So I think um, last time I said I think I would want to be Captain America, I think, yeah. Um, but, you know, think for yourself. Um, now, a similar question. I wonder, is there a biblical hero or a biblical character that if you had to say, I have to, I'd like to be that person, who would, you, who would that be? And now... Perhaps you would say, oh, if I had to be anyone in the Bible, I would be King David, the dashing, successful, rock star king that he was. He, was a, you know, he had it all. Or perhaps you might say, I want to be Deborah. I want to be this no-nonsense warrior judge with a best friend who doesn't mind putting a tent peg through someone's head, and, you know, and if needed. You know. So you might, you might admire her for that. So I think if you... If you were to consider that question, you think, what biblical character would I want to be? I think you'd probably get quite far down the list of possible characters before you decide, you know, what I really want to be is Ezra, the fussy religious lawyer that we, uh, that we read about in this particular book. So, but we are talking about Ezra, and he's the main character of the book that bears his name. Uh, but he's certainly not a charismatic biblical hero. He might be turned into an action figure. And I, I, I'd be surprised if he turned up in many children's Bibles, except if they were really trying to be complete, because uh, he's not an exciting guy. But, however, despite that, Ezra is actually one of the most influential characters in the whole Bible. As we see as we read this story, he's actually largely responsible for the shape of Jewish culture between the time of the return from their exile in Babylon and the coming of Jesus. And he was a key figure in kind of creating the world into which Jesus was born. So that's Ezra who Ezra is, but I just want to go back first, just set the scene again about what we're doing and why we're talking about him. Our series this term, we're looking at this restoration period in the Old Testament. So the big event that really divides the Old Testament into two parts is the, this defeat of the people of Judah, the destruction of their city of Jerusalem and the exile into Babylon, which happened in 587 BC. As you read the Old Testament, you look at it, the whole of the whole Old Testament story basically either leads up to that event, the exile, or uh, reflects back on the meaning of it. And it was that experience more than anything else that really shaped how the Jewish people understood God and their relationship with God and their history in themselves. And so in this series, we're reflecting on the period when these people started to come back from exile and rebuild Jerusalem and get back into their normal life. And that story is written mostly about in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And what we find there in those books is a description of a slow, patient rebuilding work that these people did with God, rebuilding their nation. And as I was trying to say last week that I think it actually resembles for us what it actually looks like for all of us when we build our lives with God. You know, we build them step by step and brick by brick as Ezra, Nehemiah and their followers did. You know, so we grow and develop our spiritual lives as Christians through this gradual work with God through his grace. And so it has a lot to teach us. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah provide a helpful picture for us what it looks like to grow in our lives with God. So last week we saw the very first thing that the exiles did when they returned from Babylon was to rebuild their worship services. They rebuilt, they started to rebuild the temple and because they wanted to centre their lives on God and on his presence with them. 
And we said, well, this is the same for us. You know, when we first move into our lives as Christians, what am I to do? The first thing is, well, how do we get our heart right with God? How do we learn to worship him? And I'm sure that's how Irene's friends are wrestling with. How do I worship Jesus, who I'm coming to know? How do I put him at the centre of my life? So the question then becomes, though, though, after you've done that, after you said, well, I do want to worship, I do want to, I do want to centre my life on God, well, how do you live the rest of your life as a Christian person outside the times of worship? What are the boundaries of behaviour? How, how do godly people live? What do they do? What makes someone different if God is in their life? What makes us distinct from those who don't? And so what do you do? What do you not do? And that's where the work of Ezra in the rebuilding process of Jerusalem comes in. As we read in our Bible passage, so Ezra was one of the Jewish exiles in Babylon. He was probably born there or maybe just before the exile. And he was someone with a special calling, we read, and a special interest in studying the ancient laws of Israel. And so he was given a commission by the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, to bring the knowledge and the practice of the law of Moses back to his people in Jerusalem as they were rebuilding. And so when, when we talk about the law, this is the law that we find in the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Torah or the books of the law. And it describes the moral and religious laws for the nation of Israel, including you know, the Ten Commandments. And it worked as a kind of blueprint of life for those people about how they're supposed to live in their promised land. And so that's what Ezra studied and taught. And we spent a bit, um, sorry, we're going, we were going to spend a bit of time, but uh, you, as you heard, the, the reading that we had started with this long list of Ezra's um, ancestors, which Jerome did very well to work through, or the Hebrew names. Everyone gets scared whenever the Bible readers get that. I get nervous call phone calls from them. Um, so it's not just there, you know, just to have a laugh for me, to amuse people, uh, seeing people having to read it. But um, the reason why we start, there's this extensive list of difficult names in this passage, is because it traces Ezra's family line back to, as we see, the line of Aaron, the chief priest. That was the last name in that list. And as you may remember, you read the book of Moses, Aaron was the brother-in-law of Moses, and he was the first of the priests in the, the tabernacle, which was the tent that people built to worship God after he gave them the covenant and the law. And so the writer of Ezra, this book, is telling us, you know, this Ezra is part of this heritage of priests, people whose job it was to lead people to understand God and the priests of Israel. And so we see, well, Ezra's like that. He's going to carry on that tradition in his own day. So that's what he was about. Um, but Ezra's emphasis, as we see in this book, it was different. Oh, PowerPoint's done well for me today. Okay. Um, it was different to that of Aaron and the priests, and his job was different from that of his ancestor. So Ezra turned his attention away from the rituals of the temple uh, to a focus on teaching people the law and uh, how to behave. So if you think about it in simpler terms, the older priests and the religious leaders before the exile, they were focused on the ceremonies and the worship that helped people come to God and draw near to him. But Ezra was more focused on the behaviour of God's people that will show who they are and ensure that they're the kind of people that God can live with. And Ezra expresses this paramount importance that the Jewish people had then of knowing God's laws, of studying them, and obeying them. And we can understand why this might have been a concern of the Jewish people at this time after the exile, because at that time the identity and the security of the Jewish people was very fragile. They were a weak group, they were small, they were in the middle, living, uh, in, living in the middle of a ruined city, they were surrounded by various enemies, and so they were hoping and praying for a renewal of God's presence and glory in their midst and a wonderful future. And so they were looking for this kind of guidance that Ezra was bringing. How do we live so that this will happen? 
you know, most of them wouldn't have known the details of the law of Moses and how to keep it anymore. They would have forgotten. And for this reason, Ezra is considered in the Jewish tradition to be something like a second Moses, you know. Like Moses, he taught God's people how to live. And he brought this tradition again to them as they were rebuilding. And that was very important because it was part of healing the problems that had led to the exile. As we emphasized in our previous series on Jeremiah, you know, the judgment that was passed on Israel before the exile was that they had failed to keep the commandments of God and his law, to love the Lord with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so Ezra is going to come back, he says, and teach people the law of Moses, teach them what it means to live, to love God and to love their neighbors as themselves. So that's Ezra's mission. Um, I said, though, that we'd be unlikely today to consider Ezra a biblical superhero, something we would um, find exciting. And I think in general today, we find it quite hard to be sympathetic to the kind of abundant love and the reverence for a book of laws that the Jewish people felt. Um, a legal book sounds like a boring book to us. You know? you don't sit, I don't know many people who sit down and read the criminal code and things in their evening. Maybe you do. If you do... Maybe keep that to yourself. You might not win friends. But, um, but I mean, so that sounds boring to us, but they love their law. It, um, it's been pointed out that the, for the Jewish people, this book of the law of Moses was actually a symbol of this good, positive, holy life that might be possible for them in the midst of a world that was often violent and degraded. And so many of them delighted in reading the law as though it were the most exciting novel that you could possibly read. Um, to get a sense of this feeling, you just need to go to the longest chapter in the whole Bible, which is Psalm 119. This is a whole song written to praise God for his law. Um, here are a few verses chosen at random. Just, it's a very long psalm. Um, so, for instance, the writer says, The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. Or he says, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold, and because I consider all your precepts right, I hate every wrong path. You can hear they love the law. And that, so that, that, I think that psalm is actually sort of the spirit of Ezra. This is what he was about. This sort of passionate love for goodness and rightness, wanting to take in the goodness of God's words into yourself and live them out joyfully. That's what Ezra's about. And I want to say this so we can understand what this meant to Ezra and the Jewish people and what his mission was about, because it was key to rebuilding the Jewish nation. It was key to that. And it also has a lot to say to us in our life, in our own process of growing with God and building our life with him. So that's one of the applications for us. But in order to get to that application, we do need to pass through a bit of a challenge that we do have with the law. There are some less bright sides to Ezra's legacy. And we've got to see a bit how Jesus and his followers interacted with the law. Um, Ezra himself seems to have been a man of great integrity. He loved the law, he, was, he loved and he loved people. But it seems to me, as I read on the story of the Old Testament heading into the New Testament from these books, that there was something within this mission that, that sort of was to give a temptation to people in later generations to distort his ideas and his focus. Particularly the idea that if, if the people of God would just keep his laws faithfully, then the glory of God would return to the temple and they would be blessed again. And so what we see in the next couple of hundred years is that this belief, it really developed and snowballed into the movement that we would call uh, the Pharisees in the time of Jesus. Um, so we know from reading the Gospels, the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders dedicated to strictly following the law of Moses to such a degree that they had constructed, I think, about 600 extra 
laws around the laws of God to make it doubly sure that if you obey those laws, you'd definitely be keeping the central law. So they, they really got onto that. Um, and their hope was that if we, if we do this, if we obey the law, as Ezra taught us, we would, their people would be saved, God would vindicate them, and they would receive his blessing. And we know, of course, throughout the Gospels that Jesus clashed continually with the Pharisees because he didn't share their attitude or understanding of what God wanted. Because Jesus knew that the glory of God was actually present. He had come. He was here with them. And that he was acting with grace and salvation outside this kind of rigid keeping of the law um, and the way that they were doing it. And in fact, we see in the Gospels that it was the mo people who were most serious about keeping the law who had the most trouble with seeing who Jesus was and hearing his message. Um, and this idea was continued in the teaching of the Apostle Paul, and particularly the letters to Romans and Galatians. He talks about the law. What do we, how do we, what do we do with it? Um, because he understood that the law of Moses, which Ezra also taught, was actually just a preparation, really, for the coming of Jesus. And when he did come, it would be changed in our hearts. So we read in Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 to 27, Paul says, Before the coming of this faith, this is the faith in Jesus, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. And now this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have closed yourselves with Christ. So for Paul, who used to be a Pharisee before Jesus came to him, the law that Ezra taught was really more like a guardian or like a teacher who looked after God's people while they were progressing towards Christ's coming. It allowed a kind of safe space, like a school, for building up and nurturing a desire for people to experience God. But it didn't take them all the way. So I think what Ezra teaches us today is that it is imperative for us, if we're God's people, we're building our lives with him, to pay attention to how we live. This teacher, this guardian, the law. And to think about the goodness of our lives and how they match up with the goodness with God. It is important for us as Christians to have ethical component to our faith to reflect on our need to be honest, generous, faithful in relationships, truthful, just, and to do what is right. That's what the law was about. How do we treat our neighbour? How do we treat the people around us? That's actually important for us to consider. Because without that side of things, if we just worship God and we separate the rest of our life out from that, it's self-indulgence, it lacks honesty, and we're not prepared to receive God when he comes, as Jesus did, and his presence in our lives in that deep way that we're hoping for. So what Ezra brought to the Jews again after the exile in Babylon was a love for the law of God, a love for God's goodness. That's a love that we should have, a love for the goodness of God in our lives and a desire to shape their whole lives so that they were doing what is right. But what Jesus reminds us, and Paul does as well, is that the desire for goodness itself and good behaviour by itself is not the means or the goal of salvation. And Irene reminded us that that's a trouble that her people often have, is to understand that it's not about being good with God that is our goal. And it's easy for those of us who are following Jesus to forget this as well. Over time, if we are Christians, I find our lives do become more orderly. They become more uh, yeah, respectable, particularly if we're more middle-class folks. And so it's easy to become more attached to laws and rules of behaviour, particularly ones that people can see in public, the way we behave, the way our lives are conducted, our sexual morality and the things we do like coming to church and those sorts of things. Um, and, so that's, and so that's something we can become attached to as well. And the desire for holiness of life and the discipline of moral behaviour, it's good, but 
we can become like the Pharisees and squeeze the grace of God out of our lives. And the people who suffer for this, in my experience, are sincere Christian people who want to do the right thing, but find themselves failing. And they feel condemned by the law and very far away from God. And you may have felt that at some point in your Jewish Christian journey. And so as we think about the law, we think about Jesus, I think the balance here for Christians is found in the blending of the idea of these two things, of grace and law, what we might call Christian virtue or the the fruits of the Spirit, as it's called in the New Testament. So if you were here last week, I pointed out that the Christian life is is a joint work between us and God, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 13. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. So we might think about this as saying, um, if you're growing as a follower of Jesus, it's like a dance with God. He leads, we follow. It's an interaction, it's a relationship. We're not just obeying laws, we're actually interacting with someone. So God's grace and his spirit comes first into our lives, invites us to follow him. And our work, what we do, comes after that. It fits within God's grace. That's what the Pharisees forget. This is the difficulty that they had in understanding. And so they were passionate for God's law, but they forgot that God's work comes first and our work comes second. Grace comes before the law. They believe that our work comes first and then God's grace will come. If we do, if we do enough, God will bless us. And that's not what he teaches. And that's how the, law, the love of God's law turns into legalism. Because legalism is the fear that we have to earn God's grace through the extent to we, that we obey him. And Jesus says no. The reality is more relational. I think of it like being pushed on a swing um, by your parents uh, when you're a kid. So when I'm helping my boys on the swings, I you know, pull them back for a big start and then give them a push. And every time they come back, I give them a little extra push to help them go higher. Never seems to be high enough. I try, but I'm a little worried about flying off the other end. Um, But they do their bit too in that process. They swing their legs back and forth so they can go higher each time. But I'm I'm still there. But they only start because of the power I give them at the beginning and I keep pushing them along. And so I think that's an image of how God's work, grace works with us. He starts it. We continue, we follow, we participate, we obey. But it's his power. Um, um, And that's why when the Apostle Paul talks about our behaviour as Christians, he doesn't actually talk a lot about following laws and rules. Um, He talks about the transformation of our lives by grace and by the Holy Spirit and the new behaviour that comes out of that. So, for instance, in Galatians 5, chapter 22 to 23, he talks about the effect of cooperating with the Spirit of God and how it changes us. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So he's saying that the life change of a Christian is like fruit growing on a tree. Now, I don't know a lot about how fruit grows, you can probably help me, but I don't think fruit grows by the tree kind of squeezing really hard and the fruit trying really hard to grow on its own. Am I right? Russell, yeah, okay. So that's not how fruit grows on trees. It doesn't, you don't, the, tree, the, tree does, the fruit doesn't squeeze itself hard and try and grow. When the tree is healthy and it's well looked after and it's connected to its sources of life, it will grow by itself and the fruit will grow out of it. Um, Christian goodness and obedience to the law is, of God is meant to come by taking in the power of God and his grace like a tree that soaks up the sun and the water. 
and it grows by itself from drawing near to God. And that's why I think it's important to have our previous topic. We start the series that by thinking about worship. It's the act of centering our heart on God. Everything else flows from that. It does need to flow, though. Our lives do need to change. So Ezra's not a mighty superhero, but I hope we appreciate that he's, he's, not, you know, he's a good guy, and he had a lot to say. He was a hero of his day. He's a symbol, I think, in this part of the Old Testament of the passionate love for, God, for God's goodness that his people should have um, and the desire for the work of the Spirit in us. You know, and that should be the mark of Christians who are building their lives with God. And I think the application for us then is to realise that what we're being called as Christians as we grow in our faith is to pay attention to our lives and the fruit that we're showing in all the different areas of our lives with God. So God wants us to be good and he wants us to love goodness too. Um, as we're going to reflect on in a minute after I finish, this means acknowledging our failures as well, getting rid of the bad stuff. And just remembering though that being good is not the point. Being good is not the point of our faith. The point is to be free to grow with God. Free to swing higher and higher. God pushes us along and we, can, we cooperate with him. And so we gradually and slowly build that kind of life. We become the kind of people that God's spirit can live in. And we can be seen to be growing easily, clearly and fruitfully.